This week, we'll be covering fundraising and a few tactics you can take to get in front of some VCs. We also sat down with Mark Haysbrook of Dundee Venture Capital. All this and more on this week's Inside Outside. Running a startup is hard. Running one outside the valley is even harder. Inside Outside is a podcast for inside access to startups outside the valley. Each week, we'll bring you real insights, raw stories, and tactical advice from founders and startup teams around the country. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Inside Outside, an inside look at startups outside of Silicon Valley. My name is Matt Boyd. I'm Brian Ardinger. And I'm Paul Jarrett. So week seven, week seven of the podcast. How are you guys feeling about it? Lucky seven. Yeah, we've I'm had feeling a, fantastic. We've had a good week. Yeah. Alistair Kroll is in town. It's been a busy week. Yeah, it's, uh, it's Entrefest week. Yeah. So, we're going out to Iowa, so it's been pretty busy, but I love the name Entrefest. I know you do. It's awesome. I love that name. <laughs> it's going to be a good, good week. Hey, have you guys got feedback on the last episode at all? You know, we launched it. We, we've taped these things in the morning on, on Tuesday. Is it Tuesday already? Oh, man. <laughs> so we've uh, sent out the episode Monday afternoon, and we're at our, uh, I think, all-time high right now for uh, day one downloads. That's good. Yeah, traffic's looking pretty good. We're, uh, we're shooting up in the numbers on iTunes, so everything is feeling. Does that Thank freak you. you guys out? No, I, you know, no, I think it's great. I, Thanks it, for it's listening. It's justification for all of the hard work we've put in. There you I go. feel like what is, uh, what's some of the feedback that you guys have received in person? Mm. I don't receive any feedback. And I think it's because <laughs> I know like seven people in all of Nebraska. <laughs> A lot of people know Matt Boyd, but he does not know very many people. <laughs> yeah. That's true. What about you, Brian? No, it's been pretty, I mean, pretty positive. The feedback I get is, um, they like the mixture of opinions that we have and the fact that we're just covering topics that haven't been talked about a lot. Huh. It, it's crazy to me because like a lot of the topics that we talk about, I'm like, it, it's pretty, you know, straight up stuff. We're but, pretty high level at this point. Yeah. Yeah. But that's good. Yeah. Yeah. You guys want to hear some of the feedback I've got? Bring it. I kind of set this up for myself. <laughs> <laughs> nice. You never have an agenda. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's, um, I don't know people are never shy to share their opinion with me. Yeah. Um, but I've been told everything from you guys should just scrap it and start over. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which like, I love that one. Um, all the way to um, like, it's unbelievable. And it is so much um, kind of beyond just startups. Like it's, it's applicable to business and yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah and just meeting with people that it, it, I guess what's shocking to me is, like how people form an opinion on it and they're not afraid to share it with you. And it's so like, uh, you know, just in your face and out there. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to talk about fundraising this week. All of us have raised funds in some form or fashion. How much have you, how much have we all raised? Uh, just over 4 million total for myself. So it depends on how you count fundraising. So direct investment into, to startups is about a half a million um, and then another million and a half to two million in in operational dollars. For oh, that's interesting. You've like raised capital, but you also deploy it. I guess I didn't think yeah. about that. Uh, so you have a really interesting point of view on it. Huh. Yeah. How about you, Matt? I raised over, a little over a million. Um, and it, so my my raising was a little bit unconventional. It was more West Coast money, uh, pretty much all West Coast money. So. Um, what yeah. do you mean? It's what do you mean? It's unconventional. So uh, would that I, I be look conventional, at, I, and everything here would be unconventional? Maybe, <laughs> maybe that's the case. Yeah, I don't know. Um, 
everything like I, I look at the process here versus the, pro- the process that I went through and it was 100% different. Yeah. Um, yeah. it here it's more old school, like really focused on like pitch decks and right. really focused on like how, Im- how you give me a business plan or exactly like, <laughs> like that kind of stuff. And, and we like, need that for a file cabinet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And honestly, like I, I, I just have a hard time relating to that. Yeah. That mentality. I know. I mean, you and I, how far apart did we start squiggle versus Bulu box? Very, very close. Like a couple months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was as night and day of a yeah, process. As, yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And, but given in the time you were in, well, we moved back from San Francisco to Nebraska and you were in San Francisco. Yeah. So, I mean, it was literally the West coast way versus the Midwest totally. way of raising capital. Yeah. So how long ago did you raise capital for in motion? We started, let's see, August of 2012, mm-hmm. I think it was. And then within six months, we had raised enough money and launched in motion, uh, which included enough for operations for three years, as well as the, the little mini seed fund that we had to mm-hmm. deploy for over the next three years for yeah. for the teams that come through the program. Would you guys raise capital if you, like, what, do you, what would you, what's your preference, raise capital or bootstrap? Depends on type of business, I think, I, and what you're like, trying what's to. What's your personal preference? I know what I can read online, but what do you guys think? I I, boot, I bootstrap until traction. Yeah, like I want to bootstrap until we receive some sort of traction and are making money. If that model, uh, in any way, like hitting that goal of traction that that makes me comfortable to go out and raise, like. And, and say that I have a position of leverage in that negotiation. Is that what you did that, with Squiggle? Yeah, so the, the first amount that I raised was um, actually from my boss, my old boss. Like, I, I went to him with a mock-up, and I just said, like, here's what I'm thinking. And we sat down on the couch, and he's like, all right, how much can I put in? And I said, this is what I want right Da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da. now. Yeah, and it, it, like, that was my first ever exposure to that. Yep. And I was just like, holy crap. Like, yep. I just got a check. You know, and that felt really good. That was like very, very small amount, but um, yeah, for for what it was, like it it was amazing. That's kind of how money kicked off. A lot of people think they need to raise money immediately. Like it's part of the startup process. So like I've got to go raise money to to start my business. This is what I'm supposed to do, right? Like I think it's much better to start your business and actually, like you said, get some traction, prove out some points. It's going to be that much easier to raise capital. And then secondly, you may not have to <laughs> if you do it right. Yeah. Um, so I think too many people jump into the fundraising portion way too early. Totally. Uh, and, and basically burn a lot of bridges and, and don't have a lot of second chances. And in a smaller ecosystem like the Midwest, you, you don't have a lot of opportunities to get in front of multiple different people on that. Uh, so I think you have to be very careful about it. What do you mean by burn a lot of bridges? Well, you know, again, sometimes that whole adage, you only have one time to make a first impression. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. and if you make a bad first impression, a lot yep. of times you don't get that second chance. So I think you have to really think carefully about when is the right time to go out and fundraise? What do I want to raise for? Why am I even going through this process? Because yeah. as soon as you take that investment capital, it's, it's no longer your company, whether you have control or not, you know, you've got another person on board that you've got to help, um, get to that exit and you've got to, you've got to raise, I mean, you've got to, you got to get to the next level and it's a different ball game once you take capital. This episode brought to you by Dillashaw LLC, a boutique law practice tailored to investors and emerging growth companies. We sat on with Bart to discuss intellectual property. The two most common mistakes that I see in early stage companies that are very, very difficult to fix later on down the line are whenever there's something messed up with the ownership of the company 
or the ownership of the intellectual property. And most other things can be fixed. Sometimes it's expensive to fix, but most everything else can be fixed later on down the line. But fundamentally, if you, the company's core IP was not properly assigned to the company, it could lose the right to use that IP. So that's going to force the company to either find a workaround or, frankly, recreate the intellectual property, which can be expensive and time-consuming at minimum and uh, can be fatal to the company. The other problem that I see is with regard to ownership. This is the classic uh, agreement on the back of a napkin in a bar. Founders need to be really careful whenever they talk about the ownership of their company. This is the classic promises on the back of a napkin that can come back to haunt you later on down the line. Just whenever you are talking about uh, options in the company or the right to participate in the company or we're going to be partners for forever, be very, very careful about documenting that correctly and making sure that you're keeping track of it. What do you guys think about bootstrapping um, past that point of even like a small amount of traction? I personally like, you know, I've seen companies who go for like years and years and years. And, and you know, if that's like your approach, let it be. I, I think it's fine. I, I don't necessarily like that approach. It all comes down to what you what are you going to use the capital for? Yeah. I mean, I just I mean, if you need the capital to move the business fast and putting that additional capital that you don't have into the business will get you the higher capability. I mean, the higher valuation, the high, higher uh, reward and goal. That's when you should look at it, not because you know you're just looking to raise capital. See, I you have to know what you're using it for. We raised capital for Bulu Box after we had essentially drained our savings account, right? Yeah, and mm-hmm. then we found somebody or a, a good friend of mine did kind of similar mm-hmm. story to yours, Matt, where they mm-hmm. put in a very small amount, which I remember seeing a wire transfer from Golden Goldman Sachs, and at the time I was like. Oh, Oh my gosh. And now I look back and I was like, man, that was, you know, enough to just keep us afloat for yeah, such yeah. a shorter period than I thought. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think it's worth saying and nobody likes to say this cause it, it feels a little awkward or whatever, but like, you know, we had to raise capital to just continue to sure. work. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. we had rent to pay, sure. um, you know, keep the lights on, basically keep food mm-hmm. in our stomachs, et cetera. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people, you know, might come from a scenario where they have friends or family or parents or whatever it is that can kind of essentially fund them. And I say to those people, great. If you have that, take yeah, it. Yeah, like, yeah, sure, sure. I hear a lot of entrepreneurs, well, I mean, they're like, oh, I can get money from my parents, but I don't want to go that route. I'm like, are you crazy? <laughs> like, if they're going to give it to you, take it. No, and I, and I think that's worth noting is that you know, sometimes some people come from a situation and, you know, my parents would never give me cash. You know, my, my parents were entrepreneurs and, and, you know, they just, they wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's worth noting is that there are a lot of times people where are, they're in a great situation where, you know, somebody mm-hmm. can kind of foot the bill yeah. while they work on something. And, and that's great. If you have that, take it. I think the other take and you know, coming from the investor side, you know, if the entrepreneur doesn't have any skin in the game, like they haven't spent any money on their credit cards, they haven't really gone to that and to say, hey, I'm, I'm all in on this thing. Yeah, yeah. It's very difficult for investors to say, yeah, I'll give you my money. That comes up a lot in the Midwest. And yeah. I never, I feel like I've never been asked that question from like East or West Coast advi- uh, investors. Yeah. Like as far as like putting your own money into yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Like how much do you have into it? Like, yeah, you know, I've never what, been asked like, that either. What do- oh, I've been asked a lot in the Midwest. Really? Mm-hmm. Like, like specific dollar amounts. 
Um, you know, are you, I, I had one person ask me, are you prepared to mortgage your home on this? And I'm like, I don't have a home. <laughs> you mean my apartment and my student loan debt. <laughs> but, um, that comes up a lot around here, which I actually really appreciate that, that question. I like that because if I were in the investor shoes, I would probably want to know mm-hmm. the same thing. I mean, it, you just, you work at a different level frankly, when your ass is on the line. I mean, if the entrepreneur doesn't believe in the idea enough to put some of their own money or some of their own skin in the game, it doesn't have to be their own money, but it's got to be, you know, they're foregoing their salary or they're doing something that they're putting sweat equity into the the business. I I don't necessarily think it even has to come down to like the amount of your own money that you put into it, but like like the skill sets that are involved, like the the 10 years or 15 years of building that very specific skill set, like that's that's sweat equity. Like yep. that is money. Yep. And if you, if you've been working like overtime and in your, yep. in your spare time to develop that, like that skill set and that talent, um, that to me is just as, as good as money. And I think maybe that's why I think the difference is you, you, you do have a number of entrepreneurs or want to be entrepreneurs that come out and say, well, if somebody would just give me money, I would do this idea. It's like, uh, well, no, no, yeah, exactly. Way. Yeah. Yeah. Go. Yeah. That, that, uh, that like, that's annoying. It hurts me to even <laughs> hear that because there are people that are, you know, killing themselves fundraising and working around the clock yeah. and, you know, um, yeah, they have payroll and et cetera. And, and there's those people that say that, you know, Oh, if I just had money or I'm going to do this, I'm going to work on my, in my spare Once time. I get funded, yeah. Surprise. You will work at another level if it's the totally. only thing that you're working on. Totally. And I think maybe, you know, kind of getting skin in the game, it's more for me, like a signaling thing. Yeah. And especially if it's your first time, like if, if you're a first time entrepreneur, you need to signal to people around you and investors, your team, everybody else that you are in this 100,000%. And, you know, as Mark Haysbrook at Dundee would say, like you will walk through fire for it. Yeah. And, and that's what people need to see. And I think my, my, my guess is that it might change the, you know, second, third time around. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Then you look at like Elon Musk and like he took his PayPal money and he mm-hmm. just dumped it back into Tesla and SpaceX, yep. you know, and, so, and skin in the game can also come in the form of like quitting a job. Like, mm-hmm. um, my job, I quit a six figure job to go do squiggle with for like six months with no pay or yeah. nothing. Um, and that's, you know, that's part of it as well. I think that comes down to just like pure, you know, it's funny how quickly, Salary doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know what I mean? And, and it's interesting because salary, I feel like salary matters so much in the Midwest <laughs> versus does. on the West Coast. And East Benefits, Coast. title, salary, like it's just like. It's wrapped up together. Yeah, and you're just working just, so hard for it. And then and then now I look back on it and I'm like, what the, what was I doing? Yeah, like, I, what I, was I killing myself over? It was almost like, how big of a slave to your company can I become? We, we went to an event the other night uh, and I had a guy, we were basically just talking about the, the churn of um, of people and companies now. And he was like, yeah, I wrote, he said, when my parents were growing up, like or when they were my age, uh, you would spend your whole life in right. one company. Right, right. And he said, now it's, he said, now it's like, you know, three or four. And I said, three or four? <laughs> months or years like I think you know and it's progressively getting more and more but like you look at the startup world like I've been at three companies in the last two years (laughs) (laughs) or you know what I mean like that kind of vibe it's like um 
So, so yeah. you're saying like three or four years seems like a long time. To you. <laughs> yeah, it does kind of, right? It does. Yeah. Like three year increments. I think that's, I think that's a natural flow for an entrepreneur. And like every three years you kind of have yeah, I was a squiggle something for two that years. changes it because I think the first couple years is that startup grind, kind of figuring it all out. Yep. The third year is maybe you start operationalizing some things and mm-hmm. getting more some scale. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a lot of folks start at that point, start thinking, okay, how do I take it to the next level and change yep. the game? Yeah, uh, yeah, and either yeah. that's an, either new venture or or you know how I change the game with the existing thing. But I think there are like these almost three year, two three year cycles. Yeah, that people I mean we're at Bulu Box, we're yeah. in year three, yeah. and like I totally have that sense of like okay, like it's the next it's level, yeah. the next it's changing the game, mm-hmm. and yeah, you yeah. kind of talk about it and you feel it, and and there's hints of it, but yeah, there's there's something now where it's like oh, everybody mm-hmm. in the industry knows us. Um, you know, the, the model works, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And, and just the, the mentality that myself and I can see kind of our core team, um, has about like, this is what we're about to do is really gonna, you know, we, we kind of use terms like it's going to make people shake in our industry, like what we're about to do. So, so how how does somebody get the attention of a, of a VC? Well, I think, um, first of all, again, it depends on where you are in the process. I don't think most people should go to VC as the first dollars in. Yeah, uh, their first dollars in should be again f- friends, friends and family, and family. Um, friends, family, and credit fools. cards, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Uh, second <laughs> level Fs. is usually that that uh, angel investor or angel group that you may look at that may not look at. Um, they're, they're in a lot of cases they're banking more on the individual and. Uh, what you bring to the table versus, you know, the metrics behind it. Um, you know, by the time you go to, for your institutional first dollars and the VC side, you have some of the stuff figured out. So um, what, what does it take to get VC ready? Um, ha, like, uh, I, so I understand this like early phase of like seed stage, yeah. uh, th- this very, very seed kind of like friends and family money, but like what, what happens whenever you get past that stage? Um, and actually are ready for VCs and how do you get the attention of VCs? I want to drop a quick pro tip on the friends, family and fools round, which is like the first round. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Um, and this is advice that a mentor gave me. He said, anybody that wants to invest in you, make sure you tell them I'm going to lose your money. And <laughs> don't say a word after That's it so good. and watch how they react. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wait, what? you know, like, okay. And he said, here's why. The people that don't react to it will probably be really good investors, but the people that kind of look at you in shock and disbelief, yeah, they're yeah. not ready to invest. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, I've done this with family members, mm-hmm. both direct family and in-laws, and um, it, it's pretty magical when you know somebody says, I want to put X amount into your company, and I say, I'm going to lose that money for you. <laughs> and they just, one, one, one of my family members said, well, that is the worst sales pitch I've ever heard in my life. And You could but, do that here or you could do it at Vegas, but I'm going to lose your money. <laughs> right, right. And so like, I, I think that's a really good advice because, you know, if you're over promising to, you know, any of those people, your friends and family, like you're, you're in really dangerous territory and it just can't be something that hurts their checkbook because yeah. that's not good for anybody. Yeah. And it causes, especially with family, like it could get really awkward and causing tons of animosity. It's going to get weird at Thanksgiving. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Joe, I just lost your 25 grand. How are you feeling today? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Pass the gravy. <laughs> Pass the gravy. <laughs> you got enough gravy. Yeah. So going back to the, the whole VC thing, like how do you get past that? Or how do you know that you're past that friends and family round? 
And then once you are well, ready. So I think there's a middle round. So you have friends and family, which is your kind of own, own money in to get the prototype built or whatever. Then you can go out and, and talk to the angel groups, in my my opinion. You got to find those early investors to then prove, that, prove out a little bit of business model before you can go to that that first series A, um, first institutional dollars. I mean, obviously there's some VCs that focus on the early stage stage and they play at the kind of the angel level, um, with institutional money. In other words, and and maybe we should back up for, for some of the folks. So an angel is basically a person who's investing their own capital into the company, Mm -hmm. um, versus a VC is somebody who's taking money from LPs and then invest their money into so into companies. This, so there's a little bit different dynamic. This is kind of interesting because I think this format is a little bit different in the Midwest and outside of the Valley. In the Valley, like it, typically it's like you, you, some people take a little bit of friends and family money. That's okay. Um, a lot of times they don't and they launch a software product and then they just kind of, their first round is like, a million bucks and that is not a series a that's a seed round um here that's straight to seed and then (laughs) you know series a because we're kind of in the series a bubble where a lot of companies are getting funded in the seed but not kind of able to go on to that series a a lot of companies die because they just can't raise that second round so let's let me let me ask you this yeah break down matt boyd how like a you you kind of started to do this but i think it'd be interesting you break down what a typical West Coast funding would look like. Yeah. And yeah. then after that, Matt, uh, blah, 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 Brian, you break down what you think a Midwest. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to yeah. kind of so compare you go and contrast. First. So, um, yeah, companies could raise a very small amount in the very beginning, 25 grand or something like that. Um, and that's what, that's what I did. And I can only speak for what we did and what other, I know that our peer companies did. And then we just kind of, you know, grind, grind it out, build some traction, build some interest. And then you, you pitch. We went straight to, uh, to Naval from AngelList. So you pitch. Uh, and no, no matter who you get to lead your round, you, you get somebody to lead your seed round. And then how, tip, did you, how did you pitch? I didn't pitch. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll tell you that story. Um, basically I just went on this cold emailing spree. I I thoroughly believe in cold emailing. If you will ever see me like out in public or anywhere talking about anything, it would be about cold emailing. Um, and I have a whole series of blog posts on this. Um, but cold emailing, I I basically cold emailed Naval. I just said, Hey, here's our numbers. Here's how many companies have signed up. And he sent back and said, Holy crap. Um, and I, so I flew out, Sat, and my whole pit here's a, here is the entire pitch for squiggle. He's like, I love the numbers. We walked in. He's like, Hey, grab a room. I sat my laptop down and we didn't say a word. Really. We didn't really talk. I, I remember this very distinctly. Um, we didn't really say anything. And I, I said, here's the product. That's all I said, really. And he just played around with it, looked around on it and said, okay, I'm in. And he, he committed to, you know, X amount of his own personal money and then committed to sending an email, which when Naval says he's going to send an email, <laughs> it means that every investor in Silicon Valley is going to get an email from Naval. Um, and that's how, and that's how we, so breaking down that whole process, we actually had a series of angel investors mixed with traditional VC capital because we were the first syndicate. So we had, we had first a syndicate on AngelList.com. Yeah, right. Yep. So we had, um, you know, uh, its own LLC kind of broke off as a syndicate that had its own cap table with one kind of executor, which was Naval. 
overseeing the fund. It was his own mini fund, essentially. And that that one line item was on our cap table. And then we had a series of other VCs on our cap table as well. Um, and that is kind of the, the first raise. And that's becoming pretty typical now of a West Coast raise. So raising a million bucks via cold email. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, screw you guys. I'm kidding. <laughs> that's awesome. But I think that to kind of encapsulate, we wouldn't have got that meeting and he, he may not have responded if we were just uh, cold emailing with a product without numbers. Stay tuned to an interview with Mark Haysbrook from Dundee Venture Capital. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What about in the Midwest, think, I mean, people I've talked to in the West Coast, you know, they want to see that prototype or, or that real product, and they want to play with the product. You know, they don't really care about pitch decks as much as product, yeah. um, partly because they see so many pitches and they understand the market dynamics and that, so they can kind of they just have a lot more data points that they can quickly sift, uh, sift through where I think in the Midwest, we just don't have that many deals that kind of like, come they're kind of like over the story. Yeah. You, you know, like yeah. they, they don't need the emotional story to move them. Whereas it, like the Midwest the execution's is more important than the right, story Right, where I think, well here it's, it's just, don't tell me one it's hard. Again, we just don't see that many deals or as many deals as you have yeah. in the Valley. So it's harder to, to really suss and understand is that a good product? Uh, how does that fit into the market? How does that play out against the 25 other people I could sell this company to? All, all those kind of things where it's a little bit more in the DNA of the investors out on the West Coast. They've seen that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's easier to it's make those mature. quick. They've yeah, just been doing it for They can for make so those longer. connections a lot quicker than I think in the Midwest. In the Midwest, you're probably going to raise, um, you know, bootstrap it um, to get your prototype built. Maybe you go out and get an angel or two for a hundred to two fifty ish for your first kind of money in mm-hmm. to prove hundred to two hundred fifty thousand probably yeah. yeah and then um, and then you're looking at that next round being a million to two million probably um, once you have a little bit of traction is that considered a series A or a that seed? would be con- probably series A around here yeah yeah yep yeah. yep um, what does a hundred to two hundred fifty k get you? Here, it gets you a lot farther than Valley. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, quite frankly, you can get, uh, you know, you tie that in with, you know, things like prototype grants or, or other things from the state or other uh, opportunities that way. You know, two people can live, three people can live in Lincoln, Nebraska for the amount of, you know, what what's an average price in, in, in San Francisco is about 3000 bucks a, a month right now for the yeah, average. 2700 for a studio. For a studio, so that's that's, that's like five hundred square feet. I yeah. think we were paying twenty four hundred for yeah, yeah. four hundred. I was at seventeen hundred for three hundred square feet, and that was yeah. it's doubled. My apart, yeah. my yeah. specific yeah. apartment is doubled. Since you come time. over to our place, and you're like, "This is a palace." Yeah. Yeah. And what is so it here? Room. What is it here for that kind of five hundred square feet? <laughs> you, can, you can like find free space yeah. here. Exactly. Like that, that's pretty much exactly. The difference. So, so you take that off the table. Um, obviously, talent is an issue no matter where you go, mm-hmm. um, and you got to dig and claw and scratch for that no matter where you're at. Um, but if, you know, and again, if you can build that prototype and get that early traction, I think there's a lot of things you can do with your money that make it last a lot longer. I guess if you could tell us a little bit about like how you became an entrepreneur. Are there any early stories, like the first experience when you said, I want to be an entrepreneur? I'd have to say it was probably college. Um, my roommate and I wanted to go to Padre Island for spring break and we had no money and he's from an area in Nebraska where they make moccasins and I said man those are cool where'd you get them he said oh they make them all the time out on the reservation out here I said you know what I think I think girls in sororities would love these things because they were purple and green and yellow and all sorts of cool colors and he said I'll bring them in let's just go get sizes 
we'll buy them for 10 bucks and sell them for 20. You know, high five. Let's do it. So we go around. It was a great way to meet girls. We went to sororities, showed them the models. Oh, those are so cute. Those are awesome. And tried them on. We took orders. Uh, we sold enough to be able to uh, finance our trip to Padre Island. The thing we didn't. Girls? Yeah, exactly. So lame. And, you know, the girls would say, you know, I'm normally a size four. I'm surprised you're measuring me at a seven. And I said, well, there's some big guns you got there. Uh, but anyway, so we go to Padre, we come back, we had a great time and uh, learned a valuable lesson in knowing who your supplier is. Uh, there were girls waiting for us at the fraternity. And, and we were like, God, dude, we're going to make so much money here. Look, they want more. Well, they were furious because the dye from the, yeah, <laughs> moccasins had leaked through onto their feet. Oh, my God. Yeah. And they had, these girls had purple, red, yellow feet. It was a complete disaster. <laughs> and, you know, uh, know your supplier. We call the guy and go, hey, well, uh, why did this happen? So what? You're supposed to get them wet. Yeah, so, yeah, sure. Anyway, so, uh, but customer service-wise, we had to refund the money, uh, and, and we, we outfitted everybody with shoes that they liked, and at the end of the day, it was good. So that was, I think, my first indication. It was fun. It was that whole, uh, you know, emotion of you have elation and then terror mixed in at the same time. I think it's just the, the rush of, of finding something that just was uh, an unfilled need. It's just something that, that was kind of a, of a kick that I got and, and trying to then say, okay, are there other things out there like this? And so it's, it just seems to drive me every day to just, you know, what, I have a problem in my life. Somebody has a problem in their life. We'll fix it. And is it a big enough solution and is it a big enough market for anybody to care? So um, I, I was fortunate enough to have uh, two really good co-founders in a company called giftcertificates.com, uh, Doug Nielsen, Julie Mollick. And uh, we had gone through uh, a real interesting time in the late 90s. And this was when you could say, I'm going to sell seat cushions to homeless people and you'd have a public offering in the next week. <laughs> so it was a little bit of lunacy at that time. Um, but, but we went through a whole big growth spurt with this company. Uh, based in Omaha, but we had offices in Seattle and New York and New Jersey, and and the VCs that we would talk to would say, "Boy, you you don't need a million dollars; you need five. I say, "Really? This doesn't seem to make sense." It was just one of those crazy times. It's hard to uh, explain to people, and um, you know, we filed to go public. We had the everything right down to the S1. We did the road show. We had that whole thing, and uh, the bubble just burst. I mean, we had the front row seat. And it was a painful experience. It was something that we realized, wow, you know, we took in a lot of money. I mean, if you know who Bill, Bill Ackman is, he was one of our investors. And um, it was just a crazy, loony time. And we said, okay, wait a minute. At the end of the day, we ended up being diluted down to like a tenth of a percent. You know, really tough experience. And we're kind of looking at each other going, well, that wasn't very fun. Let's do something that's fun together. And um, Julie had left. Doug had left. I literally was on my way out. The phone rings. And there's a guy on the other side. He goes, hey, I'm, this is Dave. I'm calling from Yelm, Washington. I got this little business. It's called hammocks.com. 
and I want to be an affiliate of your website. And I was like, oh, God, it's the last thing I want to be doing right now. So, Dave, what do you do? You, what do you sell? He said, I've got uh, hammocks. I was like, oh, man, that sounds so good to just lay in a hammock right now. You know, September 11th had just happened, and it was a depressing time. We all had little kids, and we were thinking, you know, what's life all about here? I said, well, tell me about hammocks. Wait a minute. And, you know, and he said, oh, I, I just want to sell enough hammocks to build a drum studio in my basement. That's my goal in life. I said, okay. Well, what if you, and I just threw it out, what if you just sold this thing? Oh, I'd love to do that. I don't know what I'm doing. It's really difficult. It's a tough time. And uh, I hang up the phone. I call Doug Nielsen. And I said, literally, I said, dude, I think I got the next deal. What is it? Hammocks.com. I'm in. <laughs> just like that. Uh, we bought this thing. It was doing, I think, a, a grand total of $50,000 in sales. We thought, well, this will be fun. Let's bring it back to Omaha and we'll have some hammocks and we'll just kind of goof around with it. And this was a, a time when we had just learned about um, a thing called Google AdWords. Yeah. And so AdWords had just come on the scene, and, and uh, Doug was smart enough to say, you know, maybe we buy some keywords and for hammocks, and let's just see what happens. And um, we took the guy's old site down, we messed around with it, redesigned it, you know, made it easier to shop, uh, bought a whole bunch of keywords, put the new site up, and sales were up 300% the first day. So that was our experience in learning about, okay, there is power in how this works. And I'd like to say we had this grand master plan to build all these unique stores that wasn't in the cards at all. It was just, wow, hammocks, this is kind of fun. Doug looks out the window and he goes, what about bird baths? <laughs> oh, and this was at the time, I think, I can't remember if it was GoDaddy or whoever at the time. I look up and I say, oh, it's available. Should we buy it? <laughs> Birdbass.com. But uh, a customer got a hammock, and he calls in, and he goes, hey, I got my hammock, thanks. This is really great. It's comfortable. Hey, do you guys sell porch swings? <laughs> you know? And, and it was literally this. I'm knocking on the, the, the wall between where we were sitting, and, and he goes, what? And I go, porch swings. And he goes, it's available. <laughs> so we bought that for, I don't know, 9 bucks, 12 bucks. And that was, that was the beginning of a model then that, you know, we realized un, unmet need, hard to find products, really tough to go to a brick and mortar store and buy some of these things. And that's what, what turned into what's today is called Hay Needle. So we did the bizarro world thing like from Seinfeld with, with Hay Needle. Um, Doug and Julie and I said, if we ever raise money again, uh, what has to happen? I mean, we, we don't want to lose control. We want to have a great investor who is value-add, who really allows us also to take some chips off the table. So we haven't totally exited. We still own a, a chunk of the company. But at the time, we said it really makes sense to, to at least have some breathing room because it allows you to swing for the fences. And in the back of my mind, there was always this, how come it's so hard to raise that first round of capital for really good companies? There's smart people in the Midwest. There's good ideas, and yet they can't raise a hundred or two hundred or five hundred thousand dollars. And I kept saying we should do something about that. And so that's what led to identifying a, a hole in the whole system. And let's let's raise some money. Let's uh, let's figure this thing out and and maybe provide some seed capital. So. We opened our first fund in 2010, uh, late 2010. It was only $2 million, and it really was just my partner, Beth Engel, and I. You know, So we didn't want to go out and raise a bunch of money and then screw it up and say, you know what, there actually isn't a need. <laughs> we, 
we messed up. We missed it here by a mile. Um, but it turns out there was, and um, there was demand. There were great companies, um, you know, all up and down. Our first investment was in, uh, in fact, you know, Dusty Davidson, his company, Triple C. You know, here's a guy, a lot of passion, a lot of energy, super smart, great business. And it was easy for us. You know, the valuation seemed really, yeah, reasonable. So it was, um, but then it was like, okay, are there others, you know? Yeah. And how do we find them? And you two can appreciate this because you have to go out and knock on a lot of doors to tell your story. And, and in the Midwest, that's really difficult. You know, it, a lot of times you get the it, venture, what? Yeah. How come you're doing this? It's really risky. Uh, and so you got to tell the story over and over and over again. Here's the need. Here's the demand. It's there. This is very real. You know, so that's how we got into it that one. So, so the question was, have you seen any patterns or what makes a good founder in your opinion? Well, somebody with um, just a high level of energy who, who can balance that, um, the difference between the terror and elation. Uh, someone who's identified a very unique problem that has an enormous, that's a giant barrel just rolling right through here. This is awesome. Uh, you know, somebody who's identified a big problem, very clear solution and can articulate it in, you know, 30 seconds. You know, and and then it's it's someone like your compatriot Paul Jarrett who runs through walls. You know, yeah, and the more you challenge him, the more he runs. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah, exactly. He always says bull in a china shop. And that's exactly what he is. But he's balanced by who really does all the hard work, and he'll laugh at this. His wife Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> you have to have that balance. <laughs> I really like that, and I know I need my head examined that early stage because it's the hardest, and yet you get the most reward from that. And so sometimes you identify that opportunity and you connect with someone and you say, God, this is, I know this is going to work. This is a great team, great product. You know, it's easy to jump in when it's series A, B, and C because everybody's done all the work. <laughs> uh, and so it, to me, it's that early stage and, that, and when you get the most reward because it is daily. Well, that's it for this episode of Inside Outside. Thanks so much for joining us. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at The IO Podcast. We really appreciate our guest, Mark Haysbrook, for sitting down with us to tell his story. Music for this podcast is brought to you by bensound.com. Until next time, and as always, go build something big.